Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, team. What a great morning it's already been. Uh, those songs, I told the band in the first service, that last song kind of steals my conclusion of the sermon, but that's good because it'll put us in the right state of mind. We had a baptism where we celebrated uh, a changed life, an eight-year-old, and so look forward to seeing what, is, what the Lord is going to do in his life. It's been a great morning already, and it's going to get better because now we get to study God's Word together. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we are continuing our series, uh, our summer series in the Songs of Summer as we look at various psalms throughout this month. And two weeks ago, Robert preached on searching. Last week, he preached on integrity. And if you missed either one of those, I encourage you to go back and watch them online. Uh, They are worth your time. Today, we continue as we look at the idea and the topic of forgiveness. Uh, Forgiveness. Now, right off the bat, let me tell you, Psalm 32, here's what it doesn't talk about. It doesn't talk about us forgiving others. Um, Although we should, that is vital to the Christian life. There are plenty of scriptures all throughout the Bible that are explicit that we are to be a people who forgive those who wrong us. Um, But this this psalm does not talk about that. Rather, from, 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 we'll see from the pen of King David, blessed are those who have been forgiven. Blessed are those who God has forgiven and made right. We were talking as a staff last night on our staff text about this text, and I said, hey, fun fact about Psalm 32, it's about being forgiven by God, the, um, the building block of the Christian life. And so I'll, I'll read Psalm 32 in, in its entirety, but we'll only focus on the first seven verses this morning. So by now, it'll be on the screen, but you may have found it as well. And uh, Psalm 32, let's look at God's word together. A mascal of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel with you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. This is God's word. So what comes to mind when you think of forgiveness? We already said we, we may think of forgiving others. And yes and amen, we should forgive others. Uh, who, we should forgive those who, who wrong us. We may, we may also think um, of those that we have wronged and need to ask their forgiveness. We've, we've both been on um, both sides of that. Um, I, I was this week with my family. I had to ask forgiveness and they asked my forgiveness. And, um, We know what that feels like. We know what that's like. King David certainly knew this as well. One of the greatest characters in all the Bible, one of the greatest and most powerful kings in the history of Israel, David forgave many who wronged him, even those like King Saul who chased him all over the wilderness and tried to kill him multiple times. 
But David also knew deeply of his own sin. He knew deeply of his own need of forgiveness. He was a man who over the course of his life became painfully aware of his own sin and wickedness. He knew what it was to fall short, to nearly destroy his life because of rebellion against God, to act brazenly against God and what God had commanded. But David also learned that God stands ready to forgive those who confess their sins to him rather than to cover them up and keep them hidden away in the darkness. And this is what Psalm 32 is about. This is where we're going this morning. Psalm 32, as one commentator said, is as central to Christian theology as it is to Christian experience. Another theologian summarizes Psalm 32 this way. He says, David, having largely and painfully experienced what a miserable thing it is to feel God's hand heavy on account of sin, exclaims the highest and best part of a blessed life consists in this that God forgives man's guilt and receives him graciously into his favor. David then, after giving thanks for pardon obtained, invites others to fellowship with him in this blessing, showing by his own example the means by which this forgiveness may be obtained. That's an excellent summary of Psalm 32. I think that's fantastic and it's correct. So just a, just a bit of background as we, before we jump in. Psalm 32 is called a mascal of David. That's a weird term in Hebrew. Um, I was terrible at Hebrew, so I, I stole this from a book, but I trust the book, so it's okay. Uh, it, mascal, we don't really know what that word means. Um, scholars are kind of torn on what that means, but the, the most agreed upon definition is it's something that is written for the purpose of instruction. Um, and so that's fitting because in verse 8, you notice the first seven verses, David is speaking to God. He's, he's, he's recounting what he has said to God. And in verse 8, he switches and he says, now I'm going to speak to my readers. I'm going to speak to those who come after me. And he says, I will instruct you in these things. He's a, I'm instructing you in the way you should go. So that's what a mascal is. It's something written for the purpose of instruction. So there's a bit of Bible trivia for you this morning. And you can take that to your small group and say, I learned what a mascal is. More significantly, though, uh, many trusted commentators believe Psalm 32 should be read in connection with Psalm 51. Psalm 51, if you remember, is the psalm that David wrote shortly after his affair with Bathsheba was uncovered. He had an affair with Bathsheba, and he subsequently orchestrated the murder of Uriah, her husband. And where Psalm 51 was written close to when that happened, close to when David's sin was found out, he was kind of processing through that and, and confessing to God in that psalm. Psalm 32 is written many years after the fact. David has reflected on that situation, he's learned from it, and he's been restored. Now, sidebar, the Psalms, as they're recorded for us in our Bible, are not, uh, they're, they're, they're not chronological. So something that happens earlier in the book of Psalms could have happened later in history and vice versa. So there's another bit of Bible trivia for you. It doesn't diminish the authority or the inspiration or the infallibility of the text. It's just the way that the book has been put together. So Psalm 32 happens after Psalm 51. If you remember, after David's sin with Bathsheba, Bathsheba, he did everything he could to hide it and cover it up until he was finally confronted by the prophet Nathan. In Psalm 32, in David writing this mascal, uh, he's, he's instructing those who are coming behind him in how the Lord had forgiven him and how they also can be forgiven. That is the context in which we find ourselves this morning. And in this psalm, David shows us several things that we'll look at today. He shows us the results of unconfessed sin and what it does to us. He also shows us the remedy of confession. 
And then we see the reminder of those who have been forgiven by God, that God is our hiding place in a time of trouble. And David explains that to know ourselves forgiven by God is to know the blessing of God. And so that understanding frames our discussion and our time this morning. And so with all of that in mind, let's start to navigate our way through this psalm, through the first seven verses of this psalm. And I'm going to come back to verses one and two at the end, and we'll start at verses three and four to begin with. So first, the result of unconfessed sin, verses three and four. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So we already said that we should have David sinned in mind with Bathsheba when we read this. And after he egregiously sinned in that time, he covered it up. He hid, he lied, he denied it, he deceived, and he ignored what he had done. Years later, David reflects on this and says that it it ate away at him, wasting away his bones, causing him to groan and his strength to dry up like it does in the summer heat. Now, we live in Mississippi. You're probably aware of that. You probably know how how hot it is outside and how miserable it's been for the last month. So we know what it is for our strength to fade away and to diminish in the summer heat. The, the, the way the Hebrew is consisted there, it literally, it, it actually means like my, my vitality is gone. And so if you go work in your yard this afternoon, uh, you'll probably get to experience that firsthand. I was talking to a guy before the first service and he said his four-wheeler broke down in the bottom of a ditch yesterday. So he's got to go fish that out today. I said, good, good luck to you, man. I, I'm, I'm not going to come help you. But you <laughs> you can experience what that is like today. And that's what David says it's like in our souls when we hide our sin, when we're silent about it. It destroys us. The result of unconfessed sin is that it will eat us slowly away from the inside and it ruins us and it causes us immense grief and extreme exhaustion. But such is our tendency naturally. We naturally want to hide our sin and keep it in the dark and ignore it and forget about it and think it'll go away or it's not that big of a deal or that we can handle it ourselves. The last thing that crosses our mind is to confess our sin to God and tell him what, and, and tell him what we've done as if he doesn't already know. It's been that way since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden. Immediately after they realized what they had done, they hid from God and they were afraid of him. Adam and Eve, King David, you and me, we're all the same. We're either afraid of God and don't want to confess our transgressions to him, or we simply don't care, and we think they'll go away, and that they're not that big of a deal, and that we can handle it, and it'll be fine, that we can take care of it on our own. But look what David says. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Now, silence here is obviously a bad thing. There are times in Scripture where silence is a good thing. Be still and know that I am God. Listen for the still, small voice of of God. Listen in those quiet moments. Be silent before the Lord. Keep your mouth shut before the Lord, as Job says. But silence here is a bad thing. It is a catastrophic thing. It's tied to the deceit that we see in verse 2. The silence of David regarding his sin was deceitful in that he ignored his sin before God. And that's a human problem. It comes naturally to us. I've got small children. I'm not going to give specifics because I don't want to embarrass them. But have you ever told a small child not to do something? 
and then they think you're not watching, and then they go and do it immediately, do it literally the exact thing you said not to do, and you see them do it, you know they did it, they know they did it, and then when you say, did you do this? I didn't do it. They're covering it. They don't want to admit what they've done, even though they know you know what they've done. That, that is natural. No one taught them how to do that. No one taught them that. That's, that's in us. It is simply ingrained in us as, as fallen humans to hide, our, to hide our sin, to hide our deceit, to, to, to be deceitful. Deceit is something that we do and something that we naturally lean towards. God is the one who forgives, but we must be the ones to admit our sinfulness and confess our wrongs and tell God the truth about what we have done, again, as if he doesn't know already. And so you may say, well, if he already knows, why should I confess it? Why why do I need to confess something that God already knows? God already knows all that's in my heart. He already knows what's in my mind. He already knows what I've done. Why, Why bother confessing it? Because confessing to him, we're not, in confession, we're not informing God of something that he's unaware of. We're not giving him some sort of insider information to our souls that he doesn't already know. Rather, what we do in confession, confession acknowledges our need for forgiveness, and it also acknowledges that God alone is mighty to save has nothing to do with giving God information that he's not privy to. We are saying, I have done this, I can't fix it, but you can. Others might be able to forgive our actions, but they can't make us right. They can't make us righteous. They can't remove our sin. Only God can do that. And God will only do that when we confess our sin and our need for him. And when we don't do this, it makes our lives miserable because sin begins to fester and grow and compound and we tell a lie to cover it up and then we have to tell another lie to cover that lie and then a third lie to cover the first two lies and then by the time we get to the end of it, we don't know which lie we're caught in and it's just exhausting and it drains you just as King David experienced. And look what David says in verse four. This is telling He says that God's hand was heavy upon him both day and night. There was no escaping his guilt. He couldn't live with the things that he knew he had done before they were confessed. Now, guilt, that sounds oppressive, right? That that sounds, typically we associate um, a heavy hand with someone who is overly burdensome or hard, overbearing, difficult, and impossible to please. Maybe you have a boss like that, or a parent like that, or a spouse like that, or a friend like that. Maybe you know what it is to, to, to whatever you do, it's never good enough. But God's heavy handedness is not like that. The reason God's hand was heavy upon David was directly because of his refusal refusal to confess sin, the very same reason that he was wasting away and failing in strength. And here's the thing, God's heavy hand on David was actually a great mercy to him. This will be on the screen, you don't have to turn there, but listen to what Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says. Now this, in some ways, this keeps it all in the family because Solomon, King Solomon wrote this. King Solomon is David's son. Solomon is writing to his son. So David's son is writing to his grandson about being disciplined by God and here's what he says. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So God's heavy hand on David's guilt was not abusive, it was corrective. It was not hateful, but deeply loving. 
If God didn't discipline us, he would hate us. Just like as we're parents. A loving parent doesn't allow their child to do whatever they want. That'd be horrible. There's correction. There's a heavy hand at times. And David in his rebellion and his refusal to confess sins, rather than giving him up to his wickedness, God rested his hand heavy upon him so that he would become uncomfortable enough to repent. God will not let his people rest in their unrepentance. He will not allow himself to be deceived. We will get away with nothing. God will place his hand heavy upon us so that we feel the weight of our sin and the need to confess it. I wonder what you think of that. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. And as God's hand was heavy on David, as his bones wasted away, as his strength dried up, the guilt of his sin became more and more obvious. And guilt is something that we tend to not want to talk about. It's kind of a taboo subject. We kind of don't ever want to dwell on guilt because we're told by the prevailing winds of culture that guilt, we should never feel guilty about who we are. We should never feel guilty about what we've done. We're told to be true to ourselves and follow our hearts and never look back. Do what feels right to you. The Bible shows us that guilt can be a gift from God as he draws us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That crushing weight that you cannot get rid of. That regret that wakes you up in the middle of the night thinking, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I'm doing this. That feeling that you just can't escape your past, that you know you've messed up so bad that you could never fix it on your own. That guilt, that crushing weight of I, I, have, I have messed up so badly, this is hopeless. You know what that could be? That could be God's heavy hand resting on you. And here's what God says. Yeah, you're right. You have messed up that bad. You can't fix it. The wages of that are death. But look what I can do. I can forgive it. I can make you new. Showing God showing you that while you can't undo your past, God can forgive them and redeem them if you would just confess your sin to him and open up. God's heavy hand is a great mercy. If God were to remove his hand from us, if he were to leave us to our sin and allow us to continue in our unrepentance and our refusal to confess, if he were to leave us on our own way, we would find ourselves in Romans chapter one where God gives those who refuse him up to their own lusts and depravity. He takes their hand off and he says, fine, have it your way. And that's a terrifying place to be because there's nothing worse than having God as your enemy. And having God as an enemy is the result of unconfessed sin. But you might say, man, but you, you, John, you just don't know what I've done. Like, I, I've messed up so bad. Like, I get, yeah, David did some bad stuff, but Paul did some bad stuff. Man, like, you, you just don't know. You, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's in my past. You don't know where I woke up yesterday. There's no way I could take that to God. There's no way I could voice that out loud to God. Instead, I, I, it, it would be better if I kept that quiet and pushed that away. And I just, I'm not going to do it again. It'll be fine. We'll just, keep it, we'll just keep it over here, out of the light, in the darkness. Because there's no hope for me. And I would say to you, remember the sin that David was trying to cover up. David should have not been home. He should have been at war with his army. He was the commander of the army. They were fighting a battle. David was home, being cowardly, 
He seduced a married woman. He got her pregnant. He brought her husband off the battlefield so he would come home so he could cover his sin up. Uriah, her husband, had too much honor to leave his troops, refused to come home, so instead David moved him to the front lines where he knew he would be killed in battle the next day, and he covered it up. So David has now committed um, adultery, he has committed sexual sin, and he has also committed murder. And look what happens. After David confesses his sin and he repents to God, God calls him a man after his own heart. There is hope for you. There is no sin too great for God to forgive you of if you would confess it to him. This quote will be on the screen. You know I love the Puritans. Puritan pastor William Bridge wrote in 1649, will you rob God of his almightiness in pardoning? You say your sin is great, but is it infinite? Is, God, is, is not God alone infinite? Is your sin as big as God, as big as Christ? Is Jesus Christ only a mediator for small sins? We must confess our sins to the Lord because the alternative is unbearable and deadly. Next, we come to verse 5 and we see the remedy of confession. David says, I I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Okay, so now we see the breaking point for David. His guilt had become unbearable. His sin had crushed him to the point that he would either have to give it all over to God or be consumed by it. And while the circumstance of David's sin may, be, may have been unique to him, the hesitation to confront it, the hesitation to confess it, is all too common. We don't want to face the reality of how bad we actually are. Because sin is fun. You ever heard a preacher say that before? Sin is fun. We enjoy it because it feels good. We're not, we don't become sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. We think we can handle it. We think we can cover it up, that it really won't be that bad, that no one will find out. It's just a little, it's just a little thing, and even if it's a big thing, I'll only do it once, and that'll be that. It won't be that bad. But when the weight of that eventually lands on us, when God's hand is heavy upon us, when our bones begin to waste away and our strength begins to dry up, here's what happens. We, we, we really don't want to look into the blackness of our own depravity because what we see there forces us to come to the understanding of how lost we really are. Confession of sin and repentance forces us to taste the bitter reality of sin It forces us to acknowledge that we're hopeless beyond measure and must turn from ourselves to another who alone is able to save. David finally came to that realization that he would either have all of his sin on his head and die with it on his own head under that crushing, devastating weight and its damning consequences, or he could give it over to God. So what did he do? He acknowledged his sin to God. He no longer hid he came out of the darkness and into the light. He, he, this acknowledging is telling God the truth. Again, we're not informing God of anything. But we're being honest with ourselves and with God. We're being specific about what we've done. We are naming the transgression without pretense and without sugarcoating. We acknowledge the sin we, we, acknowledging the sin and acknowledging that God is the only one who is able to do anything about it, namely to forgive us. 
Only God can do that. And this is a comprehensive confession, a holding nothing back. Look at the words David uses here, the same words we find in verse 1 and 2. These will be on the screen if you want to write them down. David uses the words in verse 5, sin and iniquity and transgression. Sin is missing the mark a failing to meet God's standards. It's actually an archery term. I'm a bow hunter, and I miss the target a lot because... I'm not that good of a bow hunter, but uh, it's the same picture of drawing back on a bow and missing your target completely, and the arrow goes off mark. You're missing the standard. You're missing the target. You are missing the, you're missing the goal. You're, you're not meeting the standards. Iniquity is a crookedness, a perversion, a waywardness. An, an illustration that I heard one pastor say, he said, if, if sin was the color blue, everything in my life would be some shade of blue. It's an inward crookedness, a perversion, a waywardness, and transgression is just good old-fashioned rebellion against God. David gave all that over to God. He hid it no longer, and God forgave him. One commentator on this passage said that this confession, confession like this, is like opening the floodgate of a dam. When there's no confession, the waters pile up behind the dam, creating immense pressure on the wall. But as soon as the floodgate is open, the waters subside and the pressure is diminished. And some of you may be feeling that this morning. The bones that waste away in our silence. The heavy hand of God day and night. The inescapable guilt. The dried up strength in the scorching summer heat. All gone in an instant when we confess our sin and, and God makes us right because at the cross we find forgiveness. The Lord stands ready to forgive those who repent and come to him. He will not turn you away. And notice that God, that, that David did not fix himself before he, came to, before he came to confess. David didn't try to make his sins better. He didn't try to make it right. He didn't try to fix himself and, 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 and do work on his own soul. Instead, he came to God as he was, and God made him right. He knew he was unable to fix himself. We don't have to clean ourselves up first to come to God for this kind of forgiveness because this forgiveness is unable to be earned. Do you remember the old hymn, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou will receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. That is how God wants us to come to him for forgiveness. And this forgiveness is immediate and it is complete, missing not one of our sins. All our sin and all its aspects, all our missing the mark, all our perverse waywardness, all our rebellion, all our deceitful silence, all are dealt with perfectly and forgiven when there is open confession to God. All we have to do is come to him. And proper confession is always joined with faith. In confession, we're not, we don't only acknowledge our sin, but we acknowledge the God who is mighty to save. Confession isn't just remembering what you've done and, forgetting, and, and regretting it and trying to do better. Anyone can do that. 
But that will never alleviate God's heavy hand of reproof. It will never remove our guilt, and it will never take away his wrath. Rather, confession is coming to God, believing in faith that he can save you, believing that he can actually do something with your sin, that he can actually forgive you and make you right with him. True confession and true repentance is not only turning away from your sin and trying to do better. It is turning to God and obeying him, trusting him to make you new. Yes, turn from your sin. No longer walk according to the ways of the world, but turn to God, follow him, obey him, and he will do the work. This must be ongoing in the life of a believer because while we're on this side of eternity, while we're in this life, the presence of sin is always with us. As Christians, we are free from sin's penalty, but not its presence. It's crouching at our door waiting to have us. We're one click on the internet away from destroying our lives. We're one drive in the car away from making a decision that can't be undone. Sin's always there. Its presence is there. We feel its draw. But if we're forgiven, if we're a child of God, if we are a believer, we are free from the, from the penalty, which is death. Therefore, it's vital that we continually confess our sins to the Lord and let him cleanse us, not for a renewal of our salvation, for that is secure in Christ, but for our sanctification, being made holy, as we are made more and more like Jesus. Some of y'all may know that one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible is 1 John chapter 1. And you don't have to turn there, I think this will be on the screen as well, but... uh, 1 John perfectly describes why we should be always confessing our sin. And picking up in verse 5, John writes, this is 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 5 and following. John writes, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So confession is not a one-and-done event for the believer. It's not this... I'll do it once, I got fire insurance, and now I can live however I want, do whatever I want, because as long as I confess it, I'm good. No, that's not, that misses the point of what confession is. Confession moves us to the point to where sin no longer tastes as good, and we feel the bitterness, and we, and we, and we taste the, we taste the awfulness of what it is because we desire what's in the light. We walk in the light as he is in the light. It's an ongoing posture and lifestyle of killing sin. Like John Owen, the other famous Puritan, probably one of my favorites in all of church history, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The remedy of confession then is forgiveness from God who is faithful and just to do so. And then finally, verse six and seven, the reminder for the forgiven Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer, a prayer, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You were a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. 
So the reminder for those who have been forgiven like David is that the Lord himself is our hiding place. He is the one who preserves us. He surrounds us and delivers us. David is writing to instruct those who come after him and how the Lord has cared for him. He is recalling how before uh, he's recalling how before he repented he was miserable and wasting away recounting how when he confessed the Lord forgave him. And he's reminding his listeners and his readers that the Lord will continually be there as a place of refuge as sin continues to plague us. And he says that this hope and this rest can also be ours if we confess and repent our sins before God, just like God did for David. Verse 7 is so comforting as it shows the mightiness of God to keep us and protect us from the wages of sin. Yes, as we said before, we will never be free from sin's presence while in this life, but we are free from its ultimate consequence, death and separation from God. God himself is our protection, our deliverance, and our hiding place. We might feel the draw of sin every single day, but now we have a place to run from it and hide from it. We don't have to rely on the strength of our own will to keep us from sinning. But now we can rely on the very one who called us out of darkness, who forgave us, and who erased our sin once and for all. The Apostle Paul shows this in Romans chapter 7 when he writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we know ourselves forgiven this way, when we have the burden of the wages of sin taken off of us, we no longer need to be crushed by the guilt of past sins. That guilt is useful for a while to show us our need of help. But once we've been forgiven, once we've confessed, once the Lord has made us new, we don't have to be defined by that any longer. We don't have to dwell on those sins. They don't have to, the guilt of that no longer has to cripple us or crush us or be heavy on us. The famous quote from Martin Luther, the great, um, the great Protestant reformer said, he said this, he, this is true for us when, uh, when we are forgiven. He says this, he says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. You gotta love Martin Luther. If we've genuinely been forgiven, if we've confessed our sin to the Lord, if he's made us righteous through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, poured out for sinners, the shame and guilt of our past is gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The weight of our sin has been lifted and we are free. Now, we may still have to deal with the results of sin. David did. David was forgiven. He was a man after God's own heart. But here's what happened. The baby that he conceived out of wedlock with Bathsheba, it died. David wrecked his family. He wasn't allowed to build God's temple. That fell to Solomon. So there were results, but there was no condemnation. 
He was forgiven completely. This is why David wrote this strange phrase in verse 6 about everyone who is godly p- praying when, he, when God may be found and, and about this rush of great waters. He's, what he's saying there is that unconfessed sin will make us calloused towards God. If we continue in that, rather than, rather than, this, rather than the guilt bringing us closer to God, if we continue to sin thinking that we have a license, we just become callous to it and it doesn't even bother us anymore. It will hinder us from seeking God and remembering him as our refuge. The best time to confess sin is immediately, right, right after. Because if we wait until we feel like it, we will never come to the Lord and we will find ourselves further and further and further away from him. And Isaiah writes the same idea many years later in Isaiah 55, and he says, seek the Lord when he may be found. That is, as the writer of Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. And the rush of great waters, the swirling danger of sin will not swallow us up because God himself is our protection. So the reminder to those who have been forgiven, seek the Lord, confess your sin to him, hide in him, Take refuge in him. Trust that he will preserve and deliver you and rest in, the, and rest in, the, in, in knowing your sins forgiven. For those who are forgiven like this have the blessing of the Lord. Look back finally at verses one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David saw his sin forgiven. He saw his sin covered. That is, God dealt with David's sin in the same way he deals with ours when we confess to him. Forgiveness is a taking away of sin. It is a removal. The theological term for this, here's another thing you can write down if you want to take notes. The theological term for that is called expiation. And it comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system on the Day of Atonement when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice. Before he went in, he would take a goat and he would lay his hand on the head of the goat and he would confess the sins of Israel over the head of the goat and then send it off into the, into the wilderness, symbolizing God taking the sin of his people away. And just like in the system, when the priest would confess sin over the scapegoat and send it away, when we confess our sins to God, God sends our sin away as far as the east is from the west. And David said that blessed also is the one whose sins are covered. This is a payment for sin. This means that sin will be charged to someone's account, either to our own or to someone else's. God is holy. He will not let sin go unpunished. He is not mocked. He will by no means acquit the guilty. There must be a reckoning for sin, a payment. God will pour out his wrath on sin because he is the righteous judge. And so we have a choice to make. We can bear the wrath of our sin for our own sins in an eternity in hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and where torment never ends. Or we can confess our sins to the Lord and receive his grace and mercy and our sin can be charged to Jesus' account. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. He drank the cup of God's wrath all the way to the bottom against sin for all those who would believe. Jesus didn't die merely for the possibility that sin might be forgiven. But he actually bore the punishment of sin for all who believe. 
and all who confess. Therefore, we who confess to him, we who fall onto his grace and give him our sins so that we may receive his righteousness, we are forgiven of of all our transgressions. They are no more. Our sins are covered. And the Lord counts against us no iniquity because Jesus has paid it all. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Have you experienced that? No matter what is in your past, no matter what sin you are currently engaged in, no matter what you've done or are doing that you think keeps you from forgiveness or the love of God, if you feel the heavy hand of God on you today, acknowledge your sin to the Lord right now and ask him to save you and to forgive you and enter into his blessing. We invite the band up and the ushers forward as we pray. Father, um, thank you for the ability to come to you. Thank you for the offer of forgiveness that you give us um, at the cross, Lord. Thank you for your heavy hand in showing us our sin and our guilt and our, um, and our wickedness. Lord, may that draw us to you. God, I pray that if there's someone here who is wrestling with the guilt of past sin, that they'll give that over to you, Lord. There is no sin you can't cover. And like Martin Luther said, God, what of it? For I know one who has suffered on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I will be also. Lord, I pray also that you will bless these tithes and offerings, Lord, use them for your kingdom and your glory and the furtherment of your gospel throughout all lands, throughout all the ministries Father and Church supports. Thank you for the ability to worship this morning. May your word go forth. May it have its way. May it not return void. In Jesus' name, amen.